This podcast is supported by Allstate. I say red, you say blue, and someone else says purple. What if we are all right and yet don't agree? Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, is proud to be part of the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people how to have constructive disagreements. After all, part of protecting a community is bringing it together. To learn more, visit betterarguments.org. This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Millions of Americans are hungry thanks to an economy weakened by the coronavirus pandemic. There's likely more hunger in the U.S. today than at any point since 1998, reports the Washington Post. And hunger is hitting Hispanic and black households harder than white ones. Hunger doesn't just affect the body, it impacts the mind. Food historian Fred Opie says fighting hunger is important, especially for kids. You can't expect great behavior of kids. You can't expect educational achievement if people are going to school hungry. Today, food justice, how hunger and health intersect with structural racism in America. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's conversation is from the Institute's Food and Society Program. In the 1960s, the Black Panther Party created a free breakfast program for kids. Tens of thousands of schoolchildren took part, some of whom had never eaten breakfast before. Grades went up, behavior improved, and the program led to the national free breakfast and lunch programs of today. When there's no food in the kitchen, people of all ages can experience chronic stress. Millions of Americans are facing hunger, and it's especially prevalent in communities of color. Fred Opie, who wrote the book Southern Food and Southern Rights, Feeding the Revolution, speaks with Tamara Dyson. She's the executive chef and owner of Solely Vegan and has her own story of growing up hungry. Their conversation is moderated by Dr. J. Nadine Gracia, CEO at Trust for America's Health. Here's Gracia. Let's get right into this uh, conversation, uh, one that is truly timely and, and, and critically important. And I think uh, one where it's helpful to, to lay a bit of, of foundation and, and context. And, and Fred, maybe if I could start with you um, in helping to make that connection. When we, when we talk about food justice, and here we're talking specifically about hunger and health and the devastating impacts of structural racism, how do we make that connection uh, between structural racism, food, and hunger? It is interesting to think about one of the most offensive things that someone could do to you. One would be if you reach out your hand uh, and they don't shake your hand, that's offensive. Another one is denying you a seat at the table, whether it be at the breakfast table, lunch table, the dinner table. So if you think about the most iconic uh, protests during the civil rights movement, it was the sit-ins at lunch counters. Why was it so important for white supremacists to deny access to people of color, Jews, Catholics, to a lunch counter? Because breaking bread is so important to our culture and our society. So I think it says something about how you feel about an individual or a group's self-worth when you deny them access to food or the ability to sit down and eat together. You also think about some of the historic punishments in human societies, whether it be from the Roman Empire on up, that one of the most, one of the most often used punishment is to deny somebody bread and water. So there's something about eating, drinking, and the denial of that that has to do with what we think about a person or a group's self-worth. Absolutely. Thank you for, for that, that perspective. And um, you know, in, in sharing that kind of a story, we recognize the power of storytelling and really understanding these types of structural inequities that have been longstanding indeed. Uh, Tamara, you come with a, a personal story, a personal journey uh, that I think is, is really compelling to put a, a face to, to what we're describing and, and would love to hear um, a little bit about your personal story and, and how that then brought you into the food industry and into the restaurant industry itself. Yeah, I think that, um, well, first of all, I come from a very food insecure background. Uh, you know, my mother, uh, a single mother of three, I, the youngest of three, 
And, you know, there were times that we, my mother shared with me only recently, because I only remember, you know, times being hungry or not having anything in the kitchen, uh, that at times we went on the third day without actually eating anything. Um, so, you know, kind of with that being said, I went into the food industry, maybe subconsciously, um, securing food for my family, because that's one thing that I can always provide is food, food to the community, food for my family. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's helped to shape and, and structure actually the individual that I am today. I used it, I myself used it as a tool to kind of become more uh, powerful, so to speak, in that, in that area of being able to provide uh, similar to my grandfather, who was able to provide um, his family the necessary, you know, the needs um, through hard work. So I applied that. Excellent. And and you did quite a pivot, right? Uh, quite a shift from where, where you were originally planning your career to go to then moving into, into food. And I, I would love for you to touch upon that and, and how you brought that experience now into the work that you're doing with regards to uh, uh, the work in, in, in the food industry itself? Yeah, definitely. So I was in the medical field prior to launching Solely Vegan, uh, one prerequisite away from nursing school. I uh, mm-hmm. worked in the specialty department at Marin General Hospital of Endoscopy. Um, and one wouldn't kind of imagine that one would complement the other, one industry would complement the other, but I learned extreme efficiencies um, and I definitely kind of apply that to my business and that's allowed me to not only sustain, but thrive. Uh, and then even after, you know, COVID, uh, hit, you know, and the business was hit so hard financially, I think that I was able to structure my thoughts on, you know, kind of how to rise above my situation, uh, so to speak. But those experiences at Marin General Hospital, working around phenomenal women, powerful women, very confident women, this all helped to to shape and mold me um, to kind of the persistent individual that I am right now in business. You know, you both touched upon um, one, this essence of you know, whether it's the deprivation or, or, or having that, that essence of the, the insecurity of, of not having food and, um, and would, would like to have us talk a little bit more about making that connection of, you know, how hunger and poverty, um, the both short and long-term consequences of that, you know, if we start, for example, with, with looking at children and, and the impact uh, of hunger uh, and, and health, um, how it leads to uh, chronic stress for children, uh, and and that carries forth into adolescence uh, and into into adulthood. Um, you know, Fred, could you talk more about um, that kind of connection and elaborate on hunger and poverty, um, and and the impact of that as it relates to then stress for children uh, and adolescents and beyond. Uh, and how that then becomes a cycle, if you will, and, and we see this, this, this exacerbate, not only exacerbation, but uh, a continuation of the inequities uh, in, in health and well-being. Well, let me just briefly say that when you do the kind of work I do, and I'm looking at uh, sources of people of African descent long before they arrived in Americas in, in 1619. So, I, you know, I'll go back and I'll look at things in Africa but I'll also spend quite a bit of time just because of research projects I'm working on or a series in a blog, looking at slave narratives. And one of the most common commentaries in the slave narratives is to be an enslaved person was to experience hunger. It was just a reality of just constantly thinking about what was your next meal. And people don't necessarily realize that it's an economic system. And so owners, gave their enslaved people just enough to survive and they were on their own to do the rest. So there's the constant ingenuity that you see enslaved people uh, involved in creating food to provide for themselves. And also Mm -hmm. as Tamara said, you see parents giving food to their children and going without so the children could survive. So that's just one thing I wanted to comment on. The other thing I, I would fast forward many decades later to the work of the Black Panther Party. And so many of us think about the Black Panther Party as uh, a bunch of of violent uh, vigilantes as it were in in the uh, area of Tamara's from in in, in Oakland. 
But keep in mind that one of the most important programs they did was start a free breakfast program. And this is around 1965, 1968. And they would organize the businesses and communities to donate food and then they would find a local church to offer space and then provide these meals because a lot of these kids in these poor neighborhoods black brown and white kids they were going to school hungry and it just it just affects what you can do in terms of learning so that was one of the first initiatives of the of the black panther party and they talk about just uh that experience for kids throughout the rest of their life, that giving that somebody gave to them and they gave back and that the kids' grades were going up dramatically. Their behavior in school was improving dramatically because they were going in there with a hot meal. I think that's, I think that's a real important uh, an example of just the importance of fighting hunger, that you can't expect great behavior of kids. You can't expect educational achievement if people are going to school hungry. Absolutely. And we see that manifesting today, right, with regards to uh, when we think about um, the impact of hunger and, and, and how it's um, leading then to both not only consequences for children, but, if, you know, further into adolescence and, and into adulthood. Uh, you, you touched upon it, Fred, with regards to, um, you know, not being able to learn uh, and, and when, you're, when you're constantly thinking about where your next meal is going to come from and, and, and feeling hungry. Uh, and that we actually also see these connections to the nutri nutritional deficiencies, right? And the, and the chronic stress that comes from hunger. Uh, and then that prolonged stress, for example, can then lead to having this prolonged release of, of um, stress hormones themselves that can then cr increase inflammation, increase risk of chronic health conditions like diabetes and heart disease. Uh, and so we see this and, and it can be cyclical uh, with regard to okay. intergenerational, right? Uh, with regards to the consequences. And, and I'm sure that the work that you have done was really studied that uh, with regards to seeing this have take place intergenerationally um, with regards to that food insecurity and, and poverty. It's just, just two other quick points I want to make on what you just said is number one is that, that this is a reality. And if you have kids and you look at your kids, just behavior, what happens when the kids get hungry? You know, sometimes you're like, your kid is just going off the hook. What's going on with the kid? And sometimes it's just simple. They are hungry. So there's, there's a certain level of stress that we all experience when we're hungry and we don't necessarily associate it with hunger until we get something to eat. And then as my mother would say, we come back to our right mind. That's, that's one point. Okay. I think the other part that we see during COVID is the number of children who would take their first meal at school and now they're doing remote learning and they're not, they don't have access to that. So a lot of communities are scrambling with, you know, how do you do effective remote learning, well, the kids aren't getting fed. And then I think the last point is that most people are not aware that it was the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program that motivated, if not shamed, the federal government into starting that program in public schools around the country. It was the Panthers first, the government second. And so specifically referring to the national school breakfast programs, national yes. lunch programs, right, which form a critical part of uh, what we consider to be our safety net, right, with yes, regards absolutely. to 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 um, for with regards to food security. You know, both of you have have, have touched upon the COVID nineteen pandemic, and um, we have all said, and and we're all seeing that uh, the pandemic uh, it it did not um, create the inequities that we're seeing, but it has exposed them. And it is exacerbating those inequities. And, and certainly we have seen that as it relates to uh, the impact on low income communities and certainly in communities of color with regards to rates of cases and hospitalizations and deaths that communities of color are disproportionately being impacted. But that also exists in all of the other dimensions as well of, of what contributes to our health, which is inclusive of food and hunger. And, and there's uh, even recent um, data that came out of the um, Census Bureau that showed uh, that Hispanic adults in particular have high, uh, higher prevalence of stress uh, because of concerns about not having enough food. Uh, can you talk to me about, you know, with this pandemic, what can we do now uh, with regards to not only addressing the immediate needs for food security uh, and addressing hunger, 
but taking the, the pandemic itself and really looking in the long term at how we address these longstanding inequities as it relates to, to food insecurity and hunger. Information. Um, I think that, you know, with the pandemic, it's, it's a lot, you know, difficult structurally speaking to, uh, to go out there and provide food. And uh, like Fred touched on the Black Panthers food program, I think something like that, along with, with, with information, I think that, you know, we lack information, therefore we lack access to um, the solutions on kind of how to rise above our situations and then even get get out of them. Um, I think that when you're dealing with food insecurity, then you have your, your thought process is low, everything is low, your self-esteem is low. And so then you think that you're undeserving. I think that offering, you know, just information to these communities so that uh, people understand that you're actually, you don't have to be a victim of your circumstance, so to speak. There are ways to get out. There are ways to, you know, kind of teach them how to fish, so to speak, as opposed to just, you know, feeding them right now, even though obviously that's important. I'd love to see programs. I mean, I'm a chef. I have a restaurant in Oakland. I'd love to see kind of the chefs form some sort of, you know, organized food distribution, uh, even if it's just like a, a once once a month or, you know, if, if we come together kind of as a collective, then it's it, it, it bears a kind of a lighter weight on each individual's uh, shoulder. Um, but honestly, I feed people physically, but I really, really love to just share information. So I talk a lot to uh, kind of the youth um, you know, given my background, it's something that I had to rely on my thought process in order to get me out along the way. Uh, there were books that I read, you know, um, that I had to kind of go out and seek and then found, but it's just about kind of knowing that there is a solution out there, um, you know, to actually pursue it. Uh, and a lot of the youth, especially if they're dealing with food insecurity, they have no idea um, that they can overcome their situation. So I think information is, is, is so very important. I think that there's a great deal of value in remembering what people did before us. And, and as an historian, that's a lot of what I do with my work is I look at what's going on now and I think what lessons can we get from history? And I think there are a couple of them. I'm gonna give you some from different cultures and or societies. One is from, uh, from Turkey, that there's an expression that we use here in our country called on the hook, being on the hook for something. And that is when you would go into a, a bakery in Turkey to buy bread and the bread would be molded into a circle, you had the option of buying your bread and then buying another piece of bread that would be for people in need. And in the bakery, there literally would be a hook inside the bakery and you would take that extra uh, bread that you bought and the baker would put it on the hook. So if somebody without food was coming by, they could come in. They wouldn't even have to ask anybody, do you have anything for me? They could just look at the hook. So I think at the individual level, at the collective level, at the corporation level, what are things we can do to be on the hook? That's one, that's one solution. Then there's certainly the examples that we see during FDR's New Deal and, and some of the programs they did there. I was just looking at images today and actually the image behind me is one from uh, relief done during the Great Depression, which is look at existing infrastructures within communities, find out what people need and then get them those, that, you know, whatever that food staple is. But one of the problems that we see during the Great Depression, and I think similarly now, is we have the food. It is a supply chain problem that we have. The food is not getting to the people. So we have an issue in our country, and not just our country, but other countries as well. But our country, we just we waste a tremendous amount of food. We throw out a tremendous amount of food. We plow under, as farmers, a certain amount of food. We got to come up with ways to identify, and, and I think the other example I would pull from the Great Depression is once the United States moved into World War II, we saw places like Ford, the GM plants, they would convert the plants. And we see similarly right now with, with uh, 
corporations and business leaders stepping up to the plate to the Biden administration. We know that you're having a problem getting these vaccines out. Let us use our supply chain that we, that we got and is working really well and implement it. I think if corporations could think of a way of using their supply chains that are set up of a way of getting folks who have plenty of food to the folks who don't have a lot of food, setting up barter systems between states, between counties and between communities, identifying people in need and coming up with a supply chain that could get there. Probably the last example, the very local level, and I wanna give a shout out to the Trader Joe Corporation. I, for many years, volunteered with their program called SHARE. And what they would do is they would pull product off of the shelves as it was about to go bad. And as many of you know, the labels on products have very little to do if the product is actually, uh, if you, it's still edible. So what they would do is pull products off, off the shelf and then they would get people at the store, like me, volunteers to come, and we would pick up the food, particularly on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and I would deliver it to soup kitchens. I would deliver it to uh, people who are in transition, uh, all kinds of facilities where people needed this type of food. Salvation Army is one of the clients where I would bring things to. It's a tremendous program, and I know a lot of folks are doing this in, in the food industry. But if you are somebody who's a leader, an HR person in your company, are you letting your employees know that there's a need, whether it's Trader Joe's or another company, for people to go pick up product and deliver it to folks? Is there somebody who is a supply chain genius within your organization that you could help create a way for that food to get to the right people? This podcast is supported by Allstate. Imagine you're having an argument with your neighbor or your coworker or even one of your kids, and it's about politics or baseball or doing their homework. All you know is you're right, they're wrong, and this argument isn't going to end until you win. Now imagine you take winning off the table and instead focus on trying to understand the other person's point of view. This is just one of the five principles of a better argument, and it'll transform your arguments from frustrating to thoughtful. Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, is proud to be part of the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people how to have constructive disagreements. After all, part of protecting a community is bringing it together. For articles, videos, and other resources that can help you have more thoughtful arguments, visit betterarguments.org. something that that both of you highlighted was was sectors uh, and the importance that it's 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 not just one sector that has to be involved in in, in this issue right that this is going to this is going to really take a multi-sectoral approach and um the other is that it's at the systems that that there's the individual but it's but it's also at the systems level right that these inequities have um, yeah, been perpetuated uh, over generations, and and some of the work that we do, um, certainly at Trust for America's Health, is is looking at these conditions, right? The conditions in which people are born, where they live, where they work, where kids play, um, as we as we term them in public health, the social determinants of health. That are these social and economic conditions. And Fred, you just touched upon um, a place that I, I was hoping we would go, which is the opportunity that we now have, certainly within the context of. of the current and new administration, presidential administration, is what do we need to see with regards to systems level change, right? That that changes the narrative that it's solely an individual's responsibility with regards to accessing food and, and addressing issues of, of hunger, but understanding that that these are longstanding structural and systemic issues that actually have to be transformed. Are there are there things that you are looking for to see? Uh, with regards to how the administration will address the issues of hunger and, and, and nutrition. 
one of the reasons why the Biden administration, and I would even see say the Trump administration, they get, they, you know, Republicans might have lost the presidential election. They got a lot of people elected to Congress and Senate, and they did. They got a lot of votes out for for Trump. Same thing with the Biden administration. And one of the things I know, I have a, I have a course I call uh, Food and Politics. I look at the role of food in politics and retail politics. And one of the ways that you get your candidate elected is you canvass neighborhoods. You go door to door and you knock and find out, are you registered to vote? Are you, have you voted yet? Can we get your right of the polls? What if we took that same canvassing strategy to find out who is dealing with food uh, inequities? and make sure, are you okay? The seniors in your neighborhood, are you okay? Do you need anything? Do you have anything in surplus that you would like to donate that's canned and perishable that we could pass on to somebody else? The canvassing strategy can be used more than just winning campaigns. Tamara, did you have some thoughts there with regards to what you would like to see with regards to just some of the trans the transformation and changes in systems that uh, can really help to address some of these structural uh, inequities? Yeah, I think that what Fred said was lovely. Um, I think just kind of holding everybody accountable. Um, um, I like kind of the thought process behind being on the hook. I think that, you know, we just need to check in. We need to check in and make sure, you know, our neighbors are okay, that our community is okay, and kind of how to logistically structure that um, is a conversation that needs to be held. But I think everyone, all of us should be held accountable. You know, something that we also uh, are seeing, uh, you know, is is actually this this paradox between hunger and, and, and food insecurity and obesity uh, and that that, uh, you know, we are we are dealing with an obesity epidemic. And yet at the same time are also seeing this crisis of food insecurity and, and, and hunger. Um, and, and in a report we, we just released last year dealt with the issue of food insecurity in the context of um, the nation's state of obesity. Um, Fred, might you talk to us about explaining that, that understanding of how are we actually having a paradox of both hunger and obesity that is also disproportionately impacting communities of color and low-income communities? I think, it's, I think it's twofold. First of all, I think you have to go back to a term I heard one person say, there's different ways of saying it, but, but food apartheid, which is you don't have grocery stores in low-income neighborhoods. I, I did my PhD at Syracuse University, had family there. And I noticed when I went there as an undergrad and then I came back for graduate school almost a decade later. And I was amazed at the number of grocery stores that closed up in low-income areas. So what do people in those low-income areas have in terms of accessing food? And particularly, not only is the, are the groceries closed, but when you have budget cuts in a city, then you have bus routes closed. And if you want to get to a decent grocery store, you got to go out to the suburbs. So they have a very limited access to food. And sometimes it's limited to bodegas that don't necessarily have the healthiest uh, type of foods in those, in those bodegas. So people are consuming things that are high in fat, high in sugar, highly processed, and you're stressed out because your economic situation. And I don't think it's any revolutionary uh, information to say when people are stressed out, they often mm -hmm. cope by drinking. They often mm -hmm. cope by eating. So there is a duality between not having access to grocery stores, farmers markets or bus routes that can get you to a place where you can access better food and then having that stuff that is inexpensive right there at your beck and call at the local corner store. Absolutely. And, and, and that really gets at, you know, the, that issue around the, the, the inequitable conditions that we see, right? And, and, and that can be traced back to understanding the history of, of redlining and how communities, you know, there was racial um, residential segregation, that there was disinvestment uh, in communities of color. And with that disinvestment also came other limited resources. So to your point, Fred, with regards to not having access to uh, full service grocery stores, but also even the types of foods that are available uh, in communities and whether they're healthy and nutritious and affordable um, and, and the opportunities that communities have. And so then to being actually utilizing and, and, uh, and having a diet that is more of a high caloric, less uh, nutrient uh, diet can actually then 
where we see the, these issues of, of obesity in, in communities that then also uh, increase the risk for these chronic conditions uh, such as diabetes and, and heart disease and, and, and other chronic conditions. And so it's how we also think about um, how we can address uh, the, the types of, of infrastructure that's a, that is available in, in communities and really bring resources to communities uh, that's equitable um, to really ensure that they have a, a, an, an equitable opportunity for, to reach their full health and, and potential. You know, um, Tamara, you know, you talked about in particular with regards to food, because there sometimes can be that tension about food and, and culture uh, and, and, and that food is a, you know, such a key part of cultural identity. And, and, and in particular, when I'm talking about not only hunger, but also in thinking about obesity, people say, well, how do I maintain our cultural identity with regards to the types of foods that we eat? I, could you share, you know, your perspective with regards to the power of, of of food and, and respect for cultural identity and, and how that actually can really create the, the healthy and healthful lifestyles uh, and living um, that communities really all deserve to have. Yeah, definitely. So my mother, again, single mother of three, uh, and, you know, at times she worked, you know, she held two or three jobs. Um, during those times in particular, she accessed um, healthier foods for us, actually. So our snacks were, you know, yogurt and granola, apples and raisins, etc. Um, other times when she, um, you know, was not working, uh, this one particular time she had gotten hurt or uh, mugged or something, and and she went a while without without working. We lived up the street from a uh, hostess bakery, and that bakery would offer the little cakes and pies for maybe like pennies or five cents or something like that. So if you can imagine um, a mother of three with a couple bucks, we were eating hostess cakes, you know, and that would, that would feed us over a few days. Um, other times when we weren't doing well, but we weren't doing that bad, then we would be able to access uh, top ramen, top ramen, uh, hot dogs, things like that. So all of these unhealthy foods, and actually I myself, uh, when we had, you know, separated from my mother is when I actually started gaining weight as a child because of that depression. And again, she made the decision to separate because, uh, you know, my father was doing a little bit better. She thought it was a good decision to leave us kids with him. And it turned out to be, you know, the wrong decision. Uh, so we moved from place to place. So again, a decision based off of food insecurity. I went into a depression being without my mother. And so what I would do is I would sneak into the kitchen at night and get uh, cake mix, you know, and I started eating cake mix, you know, at night. And that's when I really kind of first started uh, gaining weight prior to that. I didn't, I didn't really, I think that we were active enough. Um, but definitely the stress component and then trying to keep culture when you're just trying to feed your kids is almost just non-existent. You're going to do whatever you need to do to just get them fed so that they don't have to go to bed, you know, hungry. My mother, she loved us so much. So I can actually never remember feeling hungry, but I do remember being hungry, if that makes sense. Um, but I think it's just, you know, it's almost non-existent to say, okay, we're going to keep a family, you know, culture. It's not sustainable when you're just trying to feed your kids. So whatever the store or the closest store is offering, then that's what you're going to, you're going to buy. Um, and that's just, that's, that's the way it was. That's right. So, it, you know, it's, how do we make, um, uh, the healthy choice, the available choice, the accessible choice, right? And, and in your case, as you said, you know, that, that it was whatever was there that you, that you had available to you. And, and certainly uh, compounded with that is the, is the, the stress um, that, that you had just even as a child and, and imagining those types of conditions, how do we then really work to transform and create the conditions uh, in which everyone really uh, has the opportunity to um, be able to access, you know, what are healthy and, and affordable and affordable foods, nutritious foods, if you will. Um, you know, we, we also can look to the, the role of um, uh, industry in the sense of uh, the business industry, uh, where we've seen, for example, that uh, even when you look at uh, the targeting and marketing of commercials uh, and, and for foods, and, and I see, Fred, you, you shaking your head that um, that, you know, there's, there's been surveys and, and studies that have shown 
that with regards to some of the, the less healthy foods that that actually is disproportionately marketed um, to children of color. Uh, as opposed to healthy foods. And so it's, um, you know, a role can be, for example, as, as, as uh, is for lawmakers, uh, you know, Congress and, and, and others to um, actually disincentivize uh, and not provide those types of tax loopholes for, for businesses to be able to, to actually market those types of, uh, of foods to, to children and, and adolescents. Um, are there other, you know, sectors in ways in which you see, for example, even in the, the corporate and business sectors to be in, engaged and involved in this. Fred, you pointed to some, some examples that of, of entities you've worked with. One of the best books on that topic is uh, Kaisi Lehman's Heavy. It's a terrific book on that and his battle throughout his life growing up in, um, in, in poverty in Jackson, Mississippi, in that kind of, uh, you know, that, that pendulum of going back and forth with, with eating and as it relates to his mental health and the economic situation. And then there is a new book out just on what you were talking about on Mickey D's uh, by a, one of my colleagues at Georgetown University. Her name is Marcia Chatland. Her book is called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. It's by W.W. W. Norton. And it's on that actual topic, how Mickey D's has targeted towards low-income urban African-American communities uh, in their pricing, and in the location of their stores. So there, this is this is documented history that we're talking about. This is not something where we're just some left-wingers pulling things out of our hat, talking about these topics. It's real stuff. Now, I need you to repeat your question because as I was thinking about those books, I forgot. Well, I, Fred, you touched upon it, which was indeed the issue that you know, within uh, the corporate sector, business sector, all the sectors have a role to play, but in particular that uh, we've seen um, that marketing uh, of um, these unhealthy foods and, and drinks, sugary drinks, et cetera, disproportionately marketed to, uh, to, to children of color. And, and so other strategies that we can have uh, to be able to address uh, those other types of um, systemic issues where the, ex the exposure to um, these un unhealthy foods even starts as early as, as childhood as well. You know, you know, we have to be vigilant as parents, as educators. Tamara talked about this. Mm -hmm. It's we have to feed people, but more importantly, I think we have to educate people. You know, I am constantly talking about this through the work of Michael Pollan. He, he's got this great uh, part in one, one of his books where he talks about, you know, like seven types of food. And one of the things is, you know, how do you know it's real food? If it don't look like real food, it's not real food. He's got this like these seven things. Uh, I'll see if I can find it before we get off and share it in the chat. But a lot of us, we really have gotten so far away from real food. And, and we're consuming things because it's fast and easy or it makes us feel full for the moment. But in the long run, what are we doing? You know, and, and wealthy, wise people make decisions not on tomorrow, not on next year. It's five to 10 years. And if we took that same paradigm for eating and thought, thought about what this thing I'm about to drink or put in my body, what's the five to 10 year investment I'm making or deficit I'm making by this decision. It is that critical that we teach people how to be what I would call food literate. Thank you for that, Fred. Let's let's move now into um, some audience Q and A. We've got we've got several questions coming in, and and it's, it's still continuing on this on this theme with regards to specifically um, types of foods. And uh, Tamara, this one's for you. Um, it says that food is soul food is deeply embedded in the fabric of Black culture. Uh, can you talk about how uh, you've brought uh, the vegan and soul food, excuse me, movements together to create the healthy options for people? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I grew up, my grandfather was from Louisiana. Um, my mother, I'd like to kind of call her the cook of the family. So she would prepare his dishes just so the sausage, bacon, grits, potatoes, great old Southern meal. Um, but I myself, um, at the age of 17, turning vegan, uh, and this was just a decision that I made at the time, all of a sudden, you know, meat, just eating meat off of a bone didn't sit well with me. So I made the decision to go vegan when I was about 17, and then really got in the kitchen and started learning to cook when I was 18. My grandfather 
is the greatest man that I ever known in my life. So I think that he was the, the major influence on me in terms of that Louisiana culture. And so it was only natural for me to kind of gravitate towards that cuisine. But being a vegan, I had to kind of create my own version of it, so to speak. Um, and, it, it, you know, learning again and then uh, talking with the community and, and gratefully inspiring um, people to understand that they don't necessarily need meat to flavor their food. Um, in fact, spices and herbs do it a lot better. Um, and so just kind of creating that organically and then understanding later that, hey, this is something that I want to show the world. Uh, Fred, I think this question is for you. The, the, it says the... Um commodification of sugar is deeply rooted in slavery. Uh, it is also killing people of color faster. Uh, tell us about the history of sugar in the United States and the outsized impact it has on communities of color. Excellent question. Um, by the way, I'm sure Tamara is aware of our colleague, Bryant Terry, who also does vegan soul out in the same area. So there, there are quite a few people. And in my current project, my writing project is on a woman named Dr. Alvinia Fulton, who uh, was the nutritionist for Dick Gregory, um, Muhammad Ali, Bill Walton, like all these people. She was turning them on to the importance of eating well, the vegetarian diet, all these supplements. So in terms of sugar, you know, I, I always, particularly if I'm talking to a predominantly African-American audience, whether I'm, I'm in a church or a community event. You know, one of the things I stress is if you understood the history of sugar and its relationship to the enslavement of people of African descent in the Atlantic slave trade, you probably would never consume processed white sugar again. You just, you would not mess with it. The, the history is so insidious. And then you look at it and you look at the maladies that have been wreaking havoc on African-American communities, diabetes in particular. You know, it's, it is crazy if you look at your family history, how many of us suffer from diabetes, which is directly related to uh, the African slave trade, which first started with the creation of slave plantations off the island of Africa in a place called Sao Tome. So that's the first place where we see slave plantations and people see just how much money it makes. So it takes off through Brazil first and throughout the Caribbean. But we would not be in the Americas of people of African descent if it wasn't for the profits made from sugar. And then to know what doctors are saying for us. Now, so let me just go off on a, on a related tangent is we just see Tom Brady at age 40 something winning the Super Bowl. I don't I don't even know. You guys probably know if he won the MVP. I don't even know. But if you were to look closely at Tom Brady's diet, he consumes no processed sugar whatsoever. Now, there are, if you look at LeBron James, you're going to see the same thing. These these are these are highly uh, uh, productive excellent athletes and their nutritionists have said to them, if you want to excel past your peers, here's some things you could do. I'm a former athlete and I remember doing the same thing. I wasn't getting playing time. So I said, I got to change any and everything I did. One of the first things I did was give up soft drinks and processed sugar. So there, there's a relationship that historically, it's, 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 it's almost, to me, I see it like voting. Knowing what I know as an historian, I don't care if it's a local school election, school board election, I have to vote because I know. Knowing what I know about the history of sugar, I can't consume it like that. I just can't do it. Um, we're going to try to get to a few more audience Q&A. So I've got one here that says, can you talk more about how organizations can address food insecurity in a culturally responsive way? How do we make sure we're offering culturally responsive options to people? Mary, would yeah. you like to try that? Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I think that it's kind of just, you know, kind of, going back to what we said initially is um, just taking responsibility for uh, our community um, as individuals, logistically, um, you know, uh, thinking of a resolution on how to 
get food to uh, the food insecure. Um, in terms of myself, I what I serve the community uh, is accessible in comparison to um, a lot of other establishments. I keep I try to keep my uh, the prices low so that it is accessible. Um, use you know fresh ingredients, the best ingredients. I feel partially responsible um, for a lot of my guests' health because a lot of them eat with us two to three to maybe even four times a week. Um, so I pay close attention. I don't cut any corners. Uh, and I think that we should just all hold each other responsible. You know, I, I don't, what does that look like? You know, because, um, you know, everybody's independent and everybody has their own way of doing things. But, you know, what does that look like to hold all of us responsible for, you know, for our brothers and sisters and, and what we serve them or in, in, in any way I serve food, but, but how are we all serving each other to make sure that we're all okay? Uh, Fred, we've got a question that came from um, someone who uh, said that, that this was when you spoke about the civil rights movement and you were making the connections with the civil rights movement, how food can be used um, to include or exclude people. Um, what more can we as consumers of food uh, do to participate in addressing food insecurity? Uh, you know, I, I go back to the idea I just said about, I, I think of my namesake, Frederick Douglass, and a young man came up to him when he was living in D.C. towards the end of his career. And he said, Mr. Douglass, what can I do to help my people? And Douglass paused and he said, agitate, agitate, agitate. And I would add to that for the question you just said is organize, organize, organize. Take it upon yourself as a group, whether it be Knights of Columbus, KFC, uh, a local sports team you coach, it should be a great um, community service if you coach. I coach lacrosse for youth kids. Uh, take the league organization and decide that you are going to canvas the community. Do a food canvas, organize one. Organize one as an organization. If, you're, if your company is in one particular city and you got a, a kind of a a large campus and footprint in that community, take it upon yourself to organize a canvas, a food canvas and find out mm -hmm. who is in need of food, who has a surplus, particularly during the, the winter time. I'd say to everybody, do what you can to start a garden or to help somebody start a garden. And as you produce from that garden, find out people in need that you can help distribute that food throughout that community by Coming up, you know, we, we got some smart people on this on this Zoom event that come up with a way of creating a digital map of the community and do a monthly campus and where you find out where the food's needs, where the food needs are and where the food surplus is and a way to distribute that. All right. We're coming on to our final question for both of you. Uh, and, and I'll also chime in and answer on, on this question as well, uh, which is what makes you hopeful? Uh, for myself, what makes me hopeful? Uh, my experiences that I know that I can share with the youth um, makes me hopeful, um, you know, for the future of my community. I love to share. Uh, and I was just talking to someone about um, this book that I read more recently that touched on uh, kind of growing and what success looks like. And to me, success is not, you know, necessarily winning the lotto or having someone kind of completely fund my, my dream, but it's about working hard and building something. And then in that process, uh, kind of building character that I can then go back and teach the youth, not only how I did it, you know, financially, but the core values that helped me to succeed. And that's something that I, I, you know, I mentor young girls and I'm very passionate about, again, information. I'd say as, a, uh, as an educator, I am teaching two sections of a uh, first year student course. It's on justice and inequality. And I was thinking about it at the end of class and teaching it online, by the way, which I've been doing for a long time. And I'm thinking about the three students who came to office hours at the end of the class last night. We talked for about 45 minutes. Uh, one is uh, from Massachusetts, the other one's from Atlanta. 
And the third one, I cannot remember where she's from, but she's originally from Ghana. But when I listen to these three students, they are millennials who have their act together. They are passionate about making a difference. And I see young folk like that all the time, that they're like sponges. Once they find somebody who is trying to make a difference, they want to listen. They want to add what they're thinking they can do. And they, they're just inquisitive, trying to find ways to put this stuff in action. So I, I have a lot of hope uh, just because of the examples I've seen out there. Well, thank you both. And, and I will quickly say what gives me hope is um, what I see as the growing recognition and the growing sense of ownership that uh, we all have a role to play in creating a more equitable and just society. Uh, that is certainly as it relates to hunger and food insecurity. That's as it relates to access to health care and education and our criminal justice system and all of these, these various uh, conditions uh, that impact our health and well-being as a nation. And my hope uh, is that we will take what I started with, the clarion call for action uh, and this moment to actually see the transformation and make the transformation happen across generations uh, for a healthier and more equitable country. Fred Opie is an educator, author, and host of The Fred Opie Show. Tamara Dyson started Solely Vegan, which has grown into a nationally known brand with six locations. Dr. J. Nadine Gracia served in the Obama administration as Deputy Secretary for Minority Health and Director of the Office of Minority Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and programmed by the Aspen Institute's Food and Society team. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is supported by Allstate. I say tomato, you say tomato. Who's right? Trick question. By now you know that being right or winning an argument doesn't matter. Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, is proud to be part of the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people how to have constructive disagreements. After all, part of protecting a community is bringing it together. To learn more, visit betterarguments.org.